I hope there's nobody out there who's taking care of their brother's Vicodin prescription. If you are, you are an idiot. Nobody's saying you killed the patient purposefully. That's called murder. This is a landmark decision. And what it says is, you're part of the chain of addiction. Hello, welcome. Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, the December issue of Risk Management Monthly coming to you. Oh, Rick, don't keep them in suspense. We're in the beautiful Paris Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada. And why are we here, Ricky? Well, you know, Greg, we have a series of courses where we take the PAs and NPs of this world and the primary care doctors who want to increase their knowledge of emergency medicine. We have two courses, as you know, because you teach in both of them. Yes, we do. We have an original course has had over 5,000 people go in the last couple of years. That's impressive, Rick. I thought so. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we also have a, we're at the advanced course where we have uh, special sessions on imaging and, and EKG. Plus, we have like 12 faculty. It's like these are, in any case, we have found a t- little time where we're able to get together alone. It's nice to be alone with you, Greg. Oh, perfect. And where we're, we're going to do the month. Greg's got all of the stuff now. I am just going to sit here and act like um, I know what I'm doing. All right. Well, listen, Rick, I, uh, again, I am grateful to be faculty at your course, but let's get into stuff. We have some announcements today as we start out. The first announcement, and the one that I think uh, everybody who is listening to this recording needs to know is that the health plans are not required to pay fairly for emergency care under the new federal regulations. This isn't a small issue, Rick. This is huge. Because when they took those various limiting factors out of the new regulations, what it says is if they decide to pay you 20% less for a certain service, they can do it. There's no way to adjudicate rates on any emergency department visits. Now, in all fairness, the college has been very alert on this. They've sent the letters, and I don't mind saying this, there's serious discussion about a a suit against the federal government. Because if all of these health plans now know that we are closed and put together by MTALA, why would they pay any more than they have to? The federal government, and, and the federal government is the price leader in America. No matter how you want to call it, what the feds do, everybody else does. I have no idea where you'd find an insurance company that pays, you know, an, at the Aetna's of the world, all these sorts of things. They look and see what the federal government is paying. If the federal government decides to drop those payments, we're all in deep shit. Now, is this uh, something that's down the road or is it imminent? Oh, no, 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 no. This isn't down the road. This, this is coming out this month. This is the December 1st, 2015 statement issue out of the American College of Emergency Physicians in which uh, our current president, Dr. Jay Kaplan, has basically said that, that the organization is considering legal action. This is one of the great threats in the country to our continuation as a specialty. Rule of law is no money, no nothing. I mean, we can talk all we want about high-level care and this or that, but if, if we can't fund our people, then all of a sudden we become a, um, 
an afterthought to the federal government. Well, being from California, we had a big fight there one time, a big, big fight about balanced billing, where in fact the insurance company would pay a very small portion Yes. And the patients would be asked to pay the rest because, you know, we provided the service to the patients. Whether you had insurance or not, that wasn't our affair. Rick, balance billing is going to be coming back. There's only certain states that allow balance billing. But it, look at it this way. If you balance bill a, a, Medi- a Medicaid patient, which is paid under a federal system, what are the chances you're going to get any more money from a Medicaid patient if you balance bill them? Well... To my knowledge, you can't balance bill a Medicaid patient. Well, that's exactly right. And what's what's going to happen is you're going to get more and more of these things, where where we're not going to we're not going to be able to recoup our costs. So, ladies and gentlemen, I know that's not a pleasant way to begin this uh, this discussion. But you know what? Think about it. Know what your state is going to do. What your chapter is going to do what we are going to do because you realize that a lot of the federal programs are administered at the state level and we're going to have to be able to fight for reasonable reimbursement under the current system. And if you think that this is a decided issue, it is not. All right, next, we're going to, I want to alert you to a fact that there's a decent uh, article in Emergency Physicians Monthly. We know that publication. I'm quite familiar with it. Yes, we're both familiar with that one. And this is one written by uh, Michael Silverman, one of the uh, uh, standard contributing uh, editors. And it's on uh, Offscripts, The Dangers of Writing Offhanded Prescriptions for Friends and Family. Now, we're bringing this up for several reasons. The first reason is, I hope there's nobody out there who's taking care of their brother's uh, Vicodin prescription. If you are, you are an idiot. Because no state now is allowing that to happen. Don't even think about it. If you're related, you're friends, you're this, you're that, don't do it. Number two, if you are sending, uh, giving out these prescriptions to neighbors, you know, all of us uh, who, who live around folks who still believe in the germ theory of disease want a Z-Pack. They want a ZPAC. I had a good friend, a lawyer from down the street, a Stanford man, you know, big time. Guy comes to me and says, you know, I've had this cough and uh, I'm not running a fever, I'm not producing anything, but, you know, ZPAC usually does it. And I said, well, that'd be interesting if your doctor would like to give you one. I personally think you don't need that. And of course, he's all huffy and unhappy, but I think in general, we ought to stay away from passing out scripts to family members. This is not a good idea, Rick. Well, we know, we've known that for, we've done probably five or six or seven hours worth of that topic over the last eight years that we've been doing risk management monthly. You, it's against the law to do controlled substances. Exactly. Uh, we know that, but it's not against the law to do Z-Packs. Uh, so that becomes a risk management issue, not a... A a criminal issue. Yeah, and by the way, we remind everybody that your insurance, if you're in emergency medicine, does not cover your giving people prescriptions, doing this or that outside of the places which are named in your insurance policy. All right, now we're we're going to reconsider 
something that Charles de Gaulle said a few years ago. I have come to the conclusion that politics is too serious a matter to be left to the politicians. He was absolutely right. And politics runs everything. So I want to take a few minutes. I want everybody on this call or on this uh, program who's listening to this program to realize that there is a crisis brewing that we don't know exactly what to do with. What's that crisis? In May of 2015, uh, the, the decision came down in Tug Valley Pharmacy <coughs> at Al. And, and, this, and if you want to look up all these articles, all you got to do is go Google Tug, T-U-G, Valley, common spelling, pharmacy at Al dash West Virginia. There's 20 articles there about this decision, and it's huge. You know, it's funny in medicine, we kind of talk to each other, but in the legal community, this stuff is being sent out everywhere. This is a huge plaintiff win, and I want to take the few minutes to explain this because you're not going to like it. There's nobody on this call who's going to like this. What happened in the state of West Virginia, and this case, again, went right to the Supreme Court, is that uh, 29 plaintiffs came together. This is, is, this is what we call a, a booked or brought together case, very much like uh, Brown versus the board, which decided the equal facilities case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Would this also be considered a class action case? Though? It's not truly class action, but it will become class action, and this is what happened. The 29 came together and sued three pharmacies. The first name on the list is Tug Valley Pharmacy. And five doctors, one of whom's an emergency physician. What did they sue them for? For addicting them to opiates. Now, in this decision, what they said was, not only did all 29 of these people have a right to come back after the pharmacy and the physicians for getting them addicted to uh, these terrible pain medications, but they also had the right to go after them for any financial losses, i.e., some of these people who were addicts had, uh, oh my God, written bad checks. They involved in some robberies, some break-ins. So these people not only got their records expunged, their convictions overturned because they had been addicted by physicians and pharmacists, but they got the right to go back after and sue these people. Now, one of those is an emergency doctor who, you know, had written for 10 or 15 tabs for somebody, but he was part of the chain of addiction. That's the term that was used, the notorious chain of addiction. And what happened, this decision came down earlier in May, as I said, within the last two weeks, the Supreme Court of the state of West Virginia said, we're not, there were immediate challenges. They said, no, we're not looking at this again, and they can proceed ahead with these actions to recover money. Now, everybody who's everybody's interested in the question of, of uh, is there coverage? No, there isn't, Rick. I've checked this out through multiple insurance sources, in-house counsels, various people. This is an intentional tort. I was told right to my face <laughs> by my own uh, group's insurance company that, that if you're sued on this deal, 
you're up shit creek without a paddle. Would you explain a uh, intentional tour, doctor? Well, this is an action one against the other, which you did purposely. You see, malpractice, nobody's saying you killed the patient purposefully. That's called murder yes. if you do that. Yeah, I'm familiar. But if you, if you die, it's a harm, and they get to sue for the loss. If you addict somebody, what you've done is for, for uh, remuneration, for money, you've seen a patient, and you've given them a drug which you knew or should have known can cause an addiction, and you knew or should have known that such an addiction could be handled in other ways, such as Tylenol, Motrin, that sort of thing. Now, is that going to make the patients happy? No. Is it going to make their, their Presgany scores turn to shit? Yes. But this is, a, this is a major, this is a major decision, and your insurance doesn't cover it. So listen, all of you out there, listen. If you're driving the car, stop. If you're listening at home, get your piece of paper out and your pencil, because here are the three questions you're going you're to want to do. You're going to go to your computer, Google Tug Valley Pharmacy, read the decisions. Then what you're going to want to do is take it to your own insurance carrier and say, you notice here it says insurance doesn't cover it. I'd get a letter. I'd get something. If they say it's covered, <laughs> nobody Hey, I don't, I don't have that information. I want to hear from you. Yeah, here's the letter that you're going to get. Yes, you're not covered. That's yes, exactly, exactly right. right. Sometimes it's better to ask forgiveness rather than the, permission. I understand, but at least you ought to be honest with the other docs in the group. Third thing I want you to do, you can take this this recording if you want, play it. We won't come back after you well, at the group I meeting. I think we want them all to subscribe. We I mean, want we them all to subscribe. You know, uh, but what we want you to do is talk about this in the group. Do you have a policy about checking on people? Are they known abusers of medication? We could, every state now has a way to do that. Number two, what are we going to do when we ask for our insurance coverage? Let's say it's the hospital who covers you in your group. You're, you're a hospital employee. Are you covered in some way by the hospital for this quote unquote intentional tort? And this is a this is a this is a serious issue. The last thing I would do is I'd call your ASEP chapter in your state and I don't care which state it is, and find out what they're gonna do because if the the impact of this being spread to every plaintiff's counsel in the United States is we've abandoned the concept of individual responsibility. So I, whether you're in Arkansas or Maine or Virginia, whatever it is, the plaintiff's attorneys are now going to be bringing an action to mitigate or to try and show that whatever their client's problem is, and there, there are addicted patients everywhere, that they are the result of, of an action by a physician, not simple malpractice. This, is, this is, is tending over. Basically what the court said was this is, this is a, a legal concept that, that everyone shares in the guilt. And when everyone shares in the guilt, then these people have a right to come back and collect money. Well, uh I can understand your passion there. I can see it in your face. Yes. However, 
there are the devil's in the details. There are pill mills, particularly in the South, where people go in who have alleged workers' comp related injuries. They're in, they go in for these revisits. They're there for a total of five minutes. They get their Vicodin scripts, go out, start taking them on their own or selling them for six dollars a piece. Kentucky, uh, you know, the rural areas. There's this is just rampant. So, so there are physicians who are pill mill doctors. And there are pharmacies who t- are, tend to look the other way when they see script after script after script coming from these, from these mills. And, mm-hmm. and, and they bear some responsibility. These are professional people. Rick, I, I don't think anybody is against the hunting down of uh, pill mill doctors. But if you look at what emergency physicians write as far as prescriptions out of the emergency department, at the 85% level, it's pain medication and uh, antibiotics. Well, I was going to go it. there. I was going to go there. All right. Uh, because I would really, honestly, you know, we're all pro-emergency medicine. I would really like to know the details regarding this emergency physician because it is virtually impossible, in my view, for you to be accused of addicting somebody when they come in once in a while, that kind of thing. And... I think I, I, I think it is possible for a physician to kind of slip down and start saying okay and start writing them, but the, but the fact of the matter is is that the vast majority of emergency physicians are not writing for oxycontin, are aware of the sensitivity by which the public is is uh, concerned about looking at what we're doing. There are the regulations in New York City and these other places that are dr- drilling down on what we're prescribing. And frankly, I took some issue with the idea of New York City saying, our doctors cannot prescribe more than X numbers. And they said that... Three days. Three days what they... They said, they came back and said it was a guideline. Bullshit. It didn't come out as a guideline. It came out as a firm directive. And I think that, what about a person who has a broken ankle? You think three days is going to be enough for a person with a broken ankle? I don't think so. Yes. What is the likelihood they're going to be able to get in to see another physician in a reasonable amount of time with a clear-cut painful condition? Doctor, I just want everybody to go back talk to their counsels at their insurance company and say, what constitutes being part of the chain of addiction? See, these, many of these patients had been in, their own doctors were giving them medicine, and now what? It's the weekend. It's the this. It's so they the go in, My doctor's out of town. But you're not going to get into a lawsuit because you did this <laughs> once. Uh, doctor, we don't know that. That's exactly and, right. And what we've set up here is a precedent. That the emergency doc, who is somewhere along this chain, is involved. All I can tell you is the Tug Valley case is going to be discussed, talked about. We have an exceptional group of listeners, Rick. These are the upper end of the people who are concerned about these issues. And to go back to your group and talk about, What does this mean? What should we be doing? Should we review our prescribing patterns and actions? And if you don't think, I can't go to emergency departments and find people who've gotten 10 scripts this year, you know. By 10 different doctors. By 10 different doctors. Or maybe four or five different doctors. Yes, that's what we call a chain of addiction, Rick. By the way, those doctors, and and, and this is part of, of what the plaintiff put forward, uh, they could have called up, uh, you know, do we have to now 
look at the MAPS report or whatever you call it in your state uh, report as to what prescriptions they filled. Do you have, are you required to look at the three or four states around you? I mean, if you're in rural Nevada, you sit on the California border. Do you have to look at both of those things before you write uh, a prescription? See, it opens up a lot of questions. Now, we've, we've talked on this program many times about the fact that the courts do two things. They, they make uh, judgments in cases. They make decisions. And they set public policy. And what I want to know or find out uh, is, does Tug Valley now set a public policy that all of us have to be aware of, know is coming down the road, and... I'll tell you the biggest problem is if you get involved in this, if I was plaintiff's counsel, I'd include everybody who ever gave my patient, a uh, my client, a, a narcotics prescription, Vicodin, whatever you want. Uh, and then I'd let them try and figure out how to get out of this situation. Uh, lawyers tend to throw everybody in and then hear them scream and decide who they're going to let go in the case. Right? But don't you think that if that was the case on the culpability of the emergency physician, that they would have sued the group? If, if this, this suggests that there's one physician who is doing something in this group which uh, had that physician stand out. And I, honestly, Greg, I don't know the details of this, and I want to be fair, but you and I do know that there are lots and lots of docs giving out prescriptions for Oxycontin and Vicodin and Percodan. Yeah. And it, it would be relatively difficult, unless you were some kind of an unusual physician, to be nailed when it was not when, when the whole group would have been looked at. Right. I, I, I'm not the bad guy here. What I am is the guy bringing an issue up, which basically says this. If you haven't gone back and checked on your coverage, if you haven't talked to your insurance carrier, if you haven't talked to your hospital, because some of these people, you know, they go after the pharmacy, the hospital, the this, the that. All I can say is this. This is a landmark decision. And what it says is you're part of the chain of addiction and we can have money. These are people who... There are people who committed armed robberies and were in jail, and they said, well, you're going to have to, you get to sue for what you would have made if you were outside. Of course, I don't know whether any of them are working or not, but that's not the question to raise. What about all the people who are addicted to drugs and, and stole cars and this and that, and now are in prison and been in prison for five or six years? Exactly. Can they, can they sue for the fact that they were addicted by some Physicians. All I can say is a precedent has been set in the state of West Virginia. And, you know, if I had some guy in prison who was my client and I thought I could rake a few more bucks out of him, I'd say, listen, why don't we file on this? Maybe we can frighten him into letting me out early to think that they would, we'd proceed ahead with this action and they will reference uh, this case. So, boys and girls. I got it. Di- I didn't want to wreck your day, but... If, yes, you you do, if, yes, you don't, if you don't go ahead and follow through with my recommendations here and talk about this case, I think you've missed the boat on something which is, which is uncomfortable. 
Uh, and uh, let me just read to you some of these articles, just the titles. One, justices say criminal drug addicts can sue doctors and pharmacies for the addiction. The courts can let you off because you, it's a medical disability which was caused by a medical provider. It's iatrogenic disease. All I can say is, boys and girls, I don't like it. I think it's dangerous. And um, if you're writing those prescriptions or someone in your group is, understand the insurance policy you're carrying doesn't have to provide a lawyer, doesn't have to provide to cover these costs. It's not a good deal. So, Rick, what do you think? Well, you know, I think you've covered it. Uh, I I just would like to have more details on the emergency physician's behavior in this case. Okay. I can certainly understand it on the part of family physicians. I can certainly understand it on the part of um, nailing pharmacies who just kind of looked the other way as they filled prescription after prescription after prescription. Right. But I have a hard time seeing how an emergency physician could be viewed as culpable. So... I'm going to reserve judgment there. All right. Very good. But I understand the concept. I got it. Yeah. You understand the concept. All right. Uh, We're starting a new section here on Risk Management Monthly. The dumbest excuses you've ever heard why I'm late. Uh, Getting this off my chest, I don't care if you're the dumbest doc in the world. If you're there 20 minutes early, I love you and I respect you. If you're there 20 minutes late, even if you've won the Nobel Prize in medicine, I'm going to kill you. We uh, both believe... Being chronically late is a reflection of of underlying pathology related to the how you view your job, and it, it doesn't matter whether it's just five or ten minutes late. If you're five or ten minutes late for every every shift, I think that you need to think twice about what that means. Well, you're because sending a message. A, this is an active choice. This is an active choice. I choose to be five or ten minutes late every shift. Yes, exactly. And what that says is I, don't get, I have no respect for my fellow docs, and you're not a real emergency person. If when you see the guy get in 20 minutes early, your heart lights up. You feel great. And even if you're going to be there another hour cleaning up the crap, at least there's somebody to take the uh, take the next few patients well, through the door. Well, it says something terrific yeah, about it, your it, colleague. It does. It really does. You know, I used to go in, and I always went in a little bit early, and I would say to the, the doc working, would you mind if I started a few minutes early? Oh, yes, I do. Please. <laughs> I want every one of these patients in this department to be cared for by me. Thank you very much. Keep your hands off of them. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, that's going to happen. All right. So I'm going to just start today with... With a five or six of these, I've collected 40. But here's, oh God. Here's, a, no, here's an invitation to listeners to send in the dumbest uh, excuses they've ever heard. Number one, oh, you mean the schedule changed? Number two, I didn't know I was on the schedule today. How did that happen? Number three, I didn't read the schedule. Number four, I think I had car trouble. What do you mean I think I had car trouble? Or I couldn't find a parking spot. So we're just starting with those. And when you have really bad, and and it gets worse as we go down the list, but it's really dumb stuff. Well, yeah, but you have to make a distinction here. The first three are are 
I didn't know I was working today. It's not all, you're not going to be a little bit late. You're going to be very late kind of thing. Exactly. I can't find a parking spot. Is I know I'm supposed to be here, and I can't find a parking spot. So uh, at our hospital, we used to have parking spots dedicated for certain physicians that were near the emergency department. We had a couple of spots for the emergency physician uh, physicians to park in. However, there were other parking spots around there. Yeah. I would never park my car in a spot that said physician parking, yeah, ever. ever. I mean, are you an idiot? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. You've especially just, if you have you've a nice ju- car. Yeah, you've just invited problems. And in the old days, you, you, Rick, you and I both remember the old days when, when pharmaceutical reps came to the hospital and would give you bags and handfuls of samples. I had a family doc for my own family that he used to throw his kid and me in the back seat and just say, dig around for some drugs to take care of that. Literally, the entire back seat was filled with this. And they're all, you know, any bad guys are going to think, oh, it's a doctor. We're going to dig through his car. Now, they wouldn't do that with you, Rick. Because if you came came into the Chevy, (laughs) nobody's going to think that you caused a problem. Well, that's always one of my... Uh, points of view with regards to the car that you buy. You can buy anything you want. Just don't bring it to the hospital. Yes, you need a it. junker to come to the hospital. Well, every everybody should figure that out and why well, they it, don't. It's, it's surprising that they don't. I, you know, there's a hospital near uh, by us, and they have a spot for the ER doctors to park. And then you see the Porsches there. I saw a turbo Porsche there. It's like, what are you thinking about? And I must admit, when we started out. We were the first group in the country to be all residency trained to be working in, in an ER. That was Valley Presbyterian Hospital. Yeah. And we started that there. That was 1865. You took care 19, of Lincoln. 1977. Oh. I took care of Roy Disney. You know, Roy <laughs> well, Disney, you pretty know. good. But in any case, yeah. we had a guy who had made some money in the record industry before going to medical school. And this apparently there was some residual income that came in pretty much every year of this stuff. And this guy had a red Ferrari. <laughs> and there in the doctor's parking lot, right yeah. in front of the ER door for the entire world to see. If I had a ball-peen hammer and came out of that ER after having waited 20 hours to be seen, yeah. I would have done ball-peen hammer every, every, every surface <laughs> of that car. Yeah, key that sucker. <laughs> All right, now it's time. We've got mailbag. We oh, get we letters. Okay. Yeah, yep. Uh, I've got one here from one of our longstanding friends, Yosef uh, Liebman. And by the way, Yosef does shtick. He does comedy, but it's all, although he's in Israel, you understand he grew up in Philadelphia. So his is mostly... Well, uh, you know, there's some areas of Philadelphia that are probably more like Israel than Israel. Well, there could be. Uh, he, he, he says to us, uh, great issue on uh, telemedicine. Uh, it was a relief not to, um, <laughs> <laughs> not to uh, hear the, uh, the EMR and the PAs and all that kind of stuff. Quick question. Yesterday, I caught a patient filming me. Anything I can do under USA laws dash Israel uh, will probably follow uh, something similar to the United States. What should I do? Well, Yosef, we'll get some comments here from Rick. Well, uh, we've talked about this before. I think we've talked about everything before. But yeah, yeah. This is this is an issue. Uh, it, is it a patient's right? to photograph the suturing of their son's finger kind of thing without your face being in the picture and it's, they're just watching how it's done. I think that what we've suggested in the past is that you not get too pissy about this, but that you have a nice big sign that says photography in the department is prohibited 
for the privacy of our patients. Exactly. So when you so you th- turn it around, make it because it's for the patients. That's why we're doing it. It's, it's not for me or you. It's for the patients. Right, right. This isn't for them to catch my malpracticing as I suture that finger. This is to make sure they don't swing that camera and get everybody else involved. You know, and I, and I think if a person said, listen, uh, Doc, would you mind if I, you know, I got my cell phone here. Can I video this? I think if you wanted to let them do that, let, you know, that's fine. I, I think it's a little bit tough if you say, well, to tell you the truth, I'd rather not let, not have you do that. Then it's like, well, why not, Doc? Yeah, yeah. We And, and we say, hospital policy. They won't it? let us. Yeah, they, they won't the, let me. The, yeah, the great, they won't. The great they. Is, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to do it, but they won't let us. All right. So, Yosef, there oh, you go. I have no idea what they do in Israel. There's another thing that was on the same one here, where he was talking about the wine of the month. Yeah. And now that he's, you know, moving on in years, because Joseph, uh, Yosef shows up at the ASAP meeting and we get to see him. Um, and yes, he is getting older. Yes. Uh, he would like to know if we could start a section on the um, laxative of the month. Yes. <laughs> I saw that comment. Uh, and for Yosef, the most important part of that is not what you take, but removing your head from your rectum first, and it's going to help us tremendously. Oh, God. So, Yosef, charitable. there nice you go, laxative hey, listen, of the month. Let's give Yosef a thing, a plug here. Yes. He does a... Um, one-man version of emergency medical abstracts that has been really very comprehensive. Yes, very good. Year after year after year. He doesn't charge people money for it, which is a you know obviously a fundamental mistake in my point of view. But in any case, it's called um, EMU. EMU. Uh, I don't know what the, what the dot coms are at the end of it, but it, yeah. look it up. EMU. Review of the literature every month with Yosef. Okay, another another listener writes in. Dear Greg and Rick, I know of some big staffing companies that have arbitrary limits on the number of malpractice cases or the total value of the malpractice cases when they're looking to hire. Why does he say arbitrary? I mean, there are limits. Right. Uh, uh, arbitrary is, he's implying already that there, there's some violation of uh, yes. human rights here. We have, we have not. And what he says is the longer you work, the more cases you're going to get. So this is a subtle form of age discrimination. (laughs) Uh, I I don't know whether he wants to pursue that. But, uh, you know, I can only speak for three or four of the companies that I know or have given advice to. There isn't an absolute limit in most companies. What they will ask is that they be allowed to review the cases. And they look at the care. You know what? That's what they're supposed to do. In fact, it would be considered a lack of due diligence for them not to review such care. You can't get health insurance without submitting the fact that you've had 15 operations and you've got 25 chronic diseases. It is their right to determine. Now, that's you're talking about getting insured. He's talking about getting employed. Employed, right, exactly. And I, But I think that... What we have to say, we can't have it both ways. If we expect people to do screening, if we expect them to look into your past, if, if there's six months there that we can't figure out exactly where you were, we need to do all of that. In fact, there was a case that I was involved in where a physician 
was be, was applying for a job doing locums here and there. He had about a year which really wasn't on the curriculum vitae. They were desperate to fill some shifts. This person was doing jail time in Florida for the selling of narcotics. And so I think that, the, and believe me, that was brought up against the group that they had not properly screened this person. Oh, I, I think that that is... Uh I think that the responsibility of the group yep. to screen uh, future uh, applicants or employees kind of thing. Yep. Uh, I remember one time that I was about to hire a, a person, and I was fairly desperate at the time, so it, it makes you want to look <laughs> look the other way a bit. Yes. And I found out at the like the the ninety uh, ninety minute before the uh, she went to credentials. A good friend of mine in the medical records department said, uh, "Doctor, did you see this that came in on her?" And I said, "Oh God, it was it was absolutely horrible." I I remember, you know, this adrenaline rush that came over me because I was about to go to court, uh, you know, support this person in front of the medical staff, and. Bad, it was, she had some bad stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, Bad stuff. And so, yeah, I think that you're, it's re, your responsibility to do it. And I know that you're often stuck for getting doctors to work the shifts that you need. You know what? It's easier to work the shift yourself. And sometimes you got to do that because anytime there's a delay, you're, you're rushed to judgment. It's bad medicine when you're rushed to make judgments, and it's it's bad administrative medicine. Although that's easy to say because some of these ERs are chronically understaffed, and the right. poor doctors who work in them are just kind of worn down. Yep. Yeah, and and it's unfortunate, but you know what? You got to do it, and so let's let's. Uh, it's not arbitrary. Later in his letter to us, this gentleman who is asked to be remain nameless says he wants to get with with us old guys uh, a class action suit i think that's going nowhere sorry about that well the long long and short of it is his question is is it a reasonable or is it prejudicial to have the number of suits and the dollar amounts um reflected in whether you're going to be hired or not. I think in some cases, honestly, if you've had enough suits, I'm not interested in reviewing one after the other. You know, you've lost, they paid $10 million for you over the last 20 years. I'm not interested. And I remember when we were hiring doctors, the best find by far was the elderly doctor, older doctor who had a clean record. Man, this guy's gone 20 years and his record is clean, man. (laughs) 20. <laughs> Rick, you and I are pushing 40. All right. Another, another uh, person who wants to re- remain anonymous writes in. Hi, Rick. Hi, Greg. I know you guys say that, that if you think you have something that might go to a malpractice case, then you should re- report to your carrier. And many of the carriers warn you to report a potential malpractice case. I have heard that this is counted as another case against you as a physician. Who's counting? Exactly right. I've been president of two insurance companies. I've dealt with insurance companies. We've never kept any record that you brought a question to us. What that usually means, by the way, is we'll review that that case uh, just to make sure that from both the hospital's risk management angle and our group's angle, 
we've got everything, all the ducks in a row. But there is, I know of no carrier who counts that as, a, as something against you. Now, certain of the character, carriers have a fee if they open a case, like $500 or something like that. But I've never seen that used in any action of credentialing or recredentialing or making a decision on the hiring of a physician. This is just another method they have at insurance companies of, uh, you know, getting a few more Man, bucks here and there. That doesn't make any sense to me because I think that there should be a low threshold right. for you advising your carrier of a case in which you have a concern. And why would you have some kind of fee discouraging such behavior? Rick, I, all I can tell you is, is that it happens. See, you're using logic. I've been using this. logic today, and it's just not working. It's right. not. It's not going well, and that that's a bad. That's a bad, bad thing. Let's see. Do you have any um, uh, other letters over there? No. To tell you the truth, Greg, I forgot my entire file. You did. <laughs> I'm depending on you. Oh my I'm God. I'm truly depending on you. Yeah, that's right. Now, normally we kind of split this stuff up, and now we're showing you our dirty laundry. Like that, Greg has got this satchel of stuff. Yeah. And yeah, cases, yeah, but I normally do the uh, the hard the letters, work. The letters, and I'm sorry. All right. All right. Well. Uh, believe me, we still have letters, and I've got them here. I'd be happy uh, to add my two cents whenever uh, well, I, you want. I, I'm, sure you, I'm sure you'll do that. Again, writing to us, I had a very interesting response to the piece that I did in um, EP Monthly a couple of months ago, which had to do with the truth about what's happening medically legally with, with advanced practice providers. Yes, they're part of being reported to the data bank. When you sign that slip at the bottom, you take, you buy into some of this responsibility. And, and you know, after all, why do we even have them sign these charts if there isn't some level of responsibility on the part of the physician? Yeah, we, we've talked about this before, and you're starting to get a reputation as being a little, little uh, um, testy on the... PANP side, but that's only because you're seeing the 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 cases the cases that are starting to come, and I agree with you 103 percent. I, if I were a physician working in a department and was asked to sign cases at the end of the shift of the PA who saw patients or the NP who saw patients, and you <coughs> never saw any of them, I would ask your ER director, why are why are you having me sign on these cases? Yeah. What, is, what, is, what does this mean when I put my name at Rick, the bottom of these Rick, charts? Let's stop. Okay. There's going to be a provider number used in the billing of those cases. Yeah, no, no, yeah but you bring that up before. But even if these cases are going at 85% of Medicare. That's fine. They're, then they're going at the, they, they don't need the doctor on top of it kind of, you know, the doctor doesn't have to write a note, et cetera. But independent of that, why are you making me sign the stack of charts independent of how they're being billed? Let's assume they're being billed perfectly appropriately. Why is my name there? Because they're going to use your provider number, and it has to be signed somewhere. Even if they get 85%, they have to attach it to somebody's provider number. By the way, uh, the reason I'm... Everyone? Br- everyone, when they, when they bring these cases up, 
Um, I got some wonderful letters, some wonderful responses from people who heard my talk at ASAP about supervision. And I say, how do we know what the system is? And I'm watching these questions now at deposition. Doctor, did this person finish? I've spoke to someone here at the course who said seven days ago they finished their program. Now they're starting an ER seven days ago. At least when I'm dealing with a resident, I know that they've had three or four years of some supervised activity. Well, uh, naturally, I, I provoked a few letters, and uh, I've got one from a gentleman who's very, very thoughtful on this and says, you're right, we need a system, and we have a system. And he wrote uh, and included his documentation on what they consider to be a junior PA a staff PA, and a senior PA. So this is an ER doc uh, who is the manager of a group. He's the chair of a, de of a department. And he says, when we hire someone in from for the first year, they are considered a junior PA. We, we, we do direct supervision of every patient encounter mm -hmm. for at least six months. We like this? Absolutely. Absolutely we like this. And... Uh, they, they have monthly didactic training. These people have to provide continuing medical education. They have to have procedure. They have to go to simulation labs. They have to go to hands-on training. Now, after from, <laughs> one, from one year to five years, this sounds like they're doing a Do residency. you think that this is typical, doctor? I'm not saying it's typical, but I think... This is a, a needle in the haystack in terms of the way that people really do this. This is fabulous. This is fabulous. It is, it's, it's very it, responsible. The classification system they use, I think, is wonderful. They're now talking about ongoing lectures these people have to attend. Uh, they have but to they have send it to this course, of course. I've, I'm sure they do. And, and they have to have certain kinds of training. Then over five years, they still have to produce their ongoing education. They have to maintain all the usual merit badges. But they get, and they have a list of cases here in which it is mandatory that, they, that supervision is applied to the case. As we were talking today in the course, whenever you have an against medical advice situation which is going badly, uh, the PA or the NP should get the supervising doc involved simply because it's the gravitas, the weight of the system. You want to show that you've done everything you can to bring the right people in line with this case. And, again, this, super, this supervision policy as to how many people need at that moment supervision by the doc, uh, which ones have to be run by, which ones come up, what are the red flags. And they've got the red flags that say if X, Y, or Z comes up, they have to get supervision. Well, listen, does everybody have to reinvent the wheel here? Maybe we can ask this doctor's permission to put this his program on our website. Well, I, I, we certainly could do that. He is a listener, and so he, I'm sure he's listening to this right now. Uh, but, uh, and I guess I can use his first name, Bill, if you're out there. Um, let us know about this, but I think you've done a wonderful job. Yeah, absolutely. In, in, in this supervision. The, nobody, nobody thinks for one moment that we shouldn't have uh, NPs and PAs. What we think is... Their progression, their maturation ought to be controlled in some logical way that we don't take a kid 
two months out of, out of their training program and expect him to intubate babies. Listen, we have been giving this course and its brother course to at least 7,000 PAs and NPs yep. and primary care doctors. We have. And there is a recurring theme that I have heard about physicians not wanting to supervise PAs and NPs. Yeah. That they basically... I'm too make, busy. ...make it clear that they're not interested. Please don't... It's, it's not... They don't formally announce it, but their behavior is such that they make it very clear that these cases are yours. Run with those cases. Da, 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 da. This is the exact same thing we got as residents. When, so, when somebody you call up and tell you, they say, well, if you can't handle it, I guess I'll have to come mm-hmm. in. What what is the message they've just sent with that? Oh sure. Yeah, you're chicken shit if you can't if you you're not a real man if you can't take care of the problem, and that's the message that they send and and that's unfortunate because I've seen them disintegrate in in deposition and have a PA say, well he never wants to see my cases. Well you know actually I'm so interested in what uh, you, you just reviewed uh, with us there. You know we have ways of getting articles into newspapers that have circulations of 35,000 plus emergency physicians, I would really probably stir the pot a little bit to get, if Bill is willing to, um, this would be a great article for one of these newspapers. Yep, absolutely. Great article because supervision is such an an issue. The other thing that I've recently heard is uh, I have a friend, Randy Danielson, who is the uh, dean of a PA school in Phoenix. And so he's on top of the Everything. staffing issues. Yeah, exactly. He sends us stuff all the time. And in the past, about 10% of graduates of these PA schools wanted to go into emergency medicine. The most recent statistics, 18%. 18%. And it's kind of interesting because in the world of PAs, you can go down certain paths that result in some element of specialization you know there's a surgical kind of a path and there's a family medicine and pa and 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 pediatric related path and yet they don't have any path specifically for emergency medicine so people come out they are put into emergency departments early on after their graduation their training has been almost exclusively primary care and they are scared this is exactly what happened 30 years ago when they said, you can't work in an emergency department unless you're boarded, but we're willing to turn our heads and bring in PAs and MPs with little formal training because we want, because we make money from them. We, you know, we, we, I hate to say it, but it's so easy for us to kind of look, look the, the other, other way. way yeah. And I don't want to be, I, I'm, a, I'm a super believer in PAs and in PAs. I'm a super believer that not all patients need to be seen by physicians. I'm a super believer that physician work should be facilitated through the use of, of scribes and PAs and so that you can do the most important work. It's just so obvious. So this is, and it's interesting too. There's a woman here from New Zealand. They don't really use them down there. It's this this concept is really an American concept. No, no same thing it, is no really question. pretty much true in Canada. Yeah, it's, they don't use them there either. Yep, yeah, no, it's it it's we're pioneering this work is the way I would put it, and I think it's I think there's huge potential here. As I reviewed in the talk at ASAP, 
when you look at the big recruiters who are asked to hire, eight years ago, PAs were ninth or 10th down the list. Now, those people coming to ask for them, it's either second or third down the list next to general family physicians, general OB. All right, Rick, I, I, I think I'm out of letters at this point in time, unless you've got some I haven't seen. But we, we actually do appreciate it when the listeners write in. We want to know these things. If you hear about things that are going on, if there's an unusual case in your state, because uh, there's always some delay in these things getting published. But uh, now, how about some cases, Rick? All right, go, we, go, we got go. time for yes, cases, sir. don't oh, we? Yes, we do. Yes, good, we do. very good. This is one, and, and this is anonymous versus anonymous. Obviously, this was a part of the settlement. But it's a $12 million settlement, wow. and it's our favorite city, Chicago. It seems like Chicago has a lot of cases, but I want to talk about a case there where the facts of the case don't look good for the emergency physician, even though there's another specialty involved. We're talking about a 28-year-old guy who is both working and going back to college at the same time, getting an advanced degree. This, this is not a bad guy. You know, this isn't a drug abuser, this isn't a this, this isn't a that. And in a period of about 12 days, he has his fourth visit to the emergency department. What's the rule? I think, isn't it three strikes and you're out? You're in. I don't. I, if the pizza delivery man shows up three times that night, we admit him. You can't do this. In any event, unusual case, because he does come in. He says his head's full. It feels full. He's he's you know blowing some stuff out his nose. Finally, after two visits to the emergency department, he is sent to an ENT guy, who says, "Well, I don't know. He's." getting some different antibiotics we're going to do this or that now the next time he comes in he ain't talking very much what's he got rick something wrong with his brain it's right his brain he's got a brain abscess yes absolutely and and the problem is this this is a reasonable person who's now there the fourth visit i don't care why he's there and sinusitis the sinuses are blamed for more damn things and they're really not a problem. Although the um, sinuses, certain ones, have very, very thin walls. But they call them the lamina paparacea. The right? wall of paper. The wall of paper. And um, so, yeah, they, it's, it's known that they can have a infection starting on the, on the other side of the wall. With the, penetration, the, right? Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be a hole necessarily. I particularly remember a case that we saw where a woman was being treated for an otitis. It's pretty unusual for a woman to have an otitis, an adult woman, but she did. And she was getting antibiotics, and uh, all of a sudden she had a seizure. Oh, my God. And um, when we CAT scanned her head, she had a walnut-sized abscess just on the other side of her ear. It was like, that's that's where it grew. And... um, it was really interesting because in this case, it, it, it took a, a, a monkey could have found this diagnosis. Uh, even I did. Yeah. Um, but she was so, so appreciative. And the family was so, so appreciative that they became big donors to the hospital. They actually thought we had something to do with this. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I, I remember it today. Listen, why they love you is unimportant. The fact they love you is very good. Uh, the point I would make in this case is, again, this is a 10-day period of time with somebody who, who does not have chronic disease. He's not getting better. The ENT uh, guy just threw in his million-dollar policy on this case. The emergency physicians group had to throw in their million-dollar policy on the case, and the hospital had to eat the other $10 bucks. Wow. You can imagine how happy they are in this kind of case. Well, that's one of the reasons why hospitals are mandating that physician groups have higher limits than they traditionally had. Usually $1 million, $3 million was fine. Right. Uh, we know some hospital groups, it's $2 million, $5 million, $2 million, $6 million yep. kind of thing, because they're not interested in uh, carrying the weight of these uh, large suits. Let us reinforce, and I was just in, uh, in the last three weeks at a course with one of the plaintiff's attorneys who's very versed in this and said filings are unquestionably down. They're down as much as a half or 60% in a lot of states, but the big money ring the bell cases are up. And he said right now he, he knows that if he does a bad baby case, he's got between two hundred and three hundred thousand dollars in costs before trial starts. So the only thing he's gonna take are winners. He can't afford to be dealing with stuff that's sort of yes or no. And uh, and so he said he looks at the cases and has them reviewed very carefully. But the filings are down. The ring the bell cases are up. Speaking of ringing the bell. <coughs> uh, well, you know, we had our, our interview with Terry, uh, the um, owner of Nusura a, a month or two ago. Yeah. He said the same thing. They're concerned about what they he what he called monster cases. Monster cases, yes, yes. Well, he he just referred to them as ringing the bell, and of course, as a plaintiff attorney, he likes to ring bells. He really likes to ring bells. Well, I guess if you, it's good. If you go back to the sinusitis case, the answer is, what can we do better? Because a lot of people come in that their their nose their stuff kind of thing. When what is the threshold? When do we do? When do we begin? I think. I think at a certain point in time, Rick, if the saltwater nose drops don't do it, if uh, if the decongestants don't do it, uh, we got to have some time here where they're brought into the system. Is it two days? Is it three days? If they're getting worse, they got to come back immediately. But uh, but this kid had real pain. I guess the idea here is the mes- lesson is four visits to the ER. You got to think twice and just because they've seen a a consultant oh yeah doesn't get you out of the case it didn't get you out of the case if you disagree with a consultant get another get a third consultant. well this is a clearly atypical case but sinusitis right. can, can can go on for weeks yeah and so it's not a matter of the duration it must have been something to do with the intensity or other symptoms that may not have been and, and the fact about. that he had altered mental status oh yeah okay. is, is a problem Next case, and <laughs> this is not in, uh, in uh, Chicago. Oh, my God, how did that happen? But it's a failure to provide proper care to a stroke patient and death in a prominent southern state. Here's the problem, Rick. Everybody and their uncle is now projecting or trying to project onto any stroke case the fact that, and I hate this case, because the emergency doc did in this case what I would have done. 
the patient who was in their 60s was sitting on the couch. Wife said he slurred some speech. This is an exact case which I give to the residents frequently. Slurred some speech, had a little trouble moving an arm. It was incoordinated. Gets him to the hospital, and by that time, he's what? Well. Well. Now, the, 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 they go home. Now, I, when I send any of these patients home and the exam is normal, I usually say, uh, and their part's good and all that sort of stuff, I say I put them on an aspirin uh, and say posterior fossa. This is a posterior fossa case if you look at all the symptoms involved. We don't know what to do in the posterior fossa. Nobody's got a paper that says we we should treat stroke in the posterior fossa with TPA. In the only two studies which were positive, NINs and ECAS-3, those people with posterior fossa symptoms were excluded from the study. So we don't know what to do. Patients sat home, told to follow up. Of course, they drive back with the patient some six or eight hours later. And there is by the way, a basilar artery clot. They do send in the team, this is a big hospital, and and they suck that clot out. Now, although there's been some papers saying that sucking out the clot has some, in, in some cases, may be appropriate, I don't know how you would have known to do that in this patient who was better at that moment in time. But it's a big decision. I mean, and this is a dead guy, so they're not suing for. Oh, really? Fu- yeah, he died. So they're not suing for future health care. This is just a straight out, you know, reward this family for you, you being an idiot. And they were able to get some people who would say, "Oh no!" In all these cases, we start TPA, or in, in well people, in, in clinically well people, clinically well people, and that they should have done a some sort of arterial study. And they were probably beginning that Basler stroke at that moment in time. And whoever this plaintiff's counsel is, his name is actually here, was able to convince people to the tune of $6.9 million that the emergency doc screwed up. Well, it's my understanding that, at least I've read recently, that the standard of care, quote-unquote, for the management of these um, large vessel strokes is uh, the mechanical removal of these things. <laughs> and I, th- that was the phrase. That that was the phrase. The standard of care was like, what are you t- talking about? The, the the liberal use of this phraseology is, is very, very dangerous. It's terrible. The other thing is, if you go to the state of Michigan, uh, which is the one I know the best, there are maybe six hospitals, maybe five in the state that have a neuroradiology team ready to go to the operating room. You think the average 25,000 visit emergency department has somebody on call? Well, no, they, they didn't that? even, yeah, they didn't even say that this uh, will be the standard of care. Yeah. You know, which maybe is true, but it's certainly not, not true now. It's not true now, and to, and to think that that's exactly what happens. The other thing is, uh, obviously, in the posterior fossa, anterior fossa is different. I mean, we, we probably have a way of getting a tube up there, and the new sucker outer machine that's the technical term for it the sucker outer machine um is is i think better there have been three papers four now four four, uh, four positive s- studies that followed three negatives and and it was just uh, it's different 
But you know what? I don't think we can start using throwing around terms like standard of care for sucking out these clots. Yeah, and I also kind of don't want to divert from this posterior fossa case because uh, I don't know what to do with those cases. And so I guess the question is, they claimed that somebody else knew what to do it, and we didn't. Do, they, we didn't do it. Yep. And 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 the bottom line is, emergency right. docs can only do so much. It's uh, it's a difficult situation. Okay, Rick, next case. Uh, It is not a direct emergency department case, but it's a problem you're going to see more and more in emergency departments because holding site patients is only getting worse everywhere in the country. Absolutely. And so when you have people who are moderately uh, schizophrenic or whatever they are, sitting around for hours and hours and hours, they get bored. So they start to play with things or piss off people or do whatever they do, here's the case. This is a paranoid schizophrenic patient who decides that he's in the sort of the psych holding bin. He decides to attack his roommate. They get into an argument about who was talking to God and who wasn't. And so they get into a fight. Uh, There are head lacerations, stitches, that sort of thing. Nobody is sort of permanently damaged. But the guy who got the the crack on the head and the stitches from this psych patient went ahead and sued the hospital. And the basis was, knew or should have known that psychiatric patients can be dangerous. What do we think about that? You know? It's hard to disagree with that. (laughs) Res ipse loquitur. Res ipse, you're exactly right. We're sitting there now with a guy who they're waiting to take upstairs because he's paranoid, delusional, all those sorts of things. And now he's viewing his roommate as part of the conspiracy against him and hits him. I think that I think this is a very difficult situation. All I can say is they settled the case prior to the jury coming back. But they did pay money on this case, and the reason simply was psych holding is to a very great extent a difficult and dangerous process. Well, I believe it's either the CMS or the Joint Commission requires that there be sitters in these cases and that these sitters be trained. They are not necessarily the your security guard kind of thing, unless right. they've had specific training on the um, monitoring of psychiatric patients. But they just can't be left alone um, to their own uh, devices. And maybe that was an issue in this case, because I do know that when psych patients are in the emergency department, there's a sitter. There's also a sitter when they're in the ICU or wherever they're going, there's a sitter. God, you must work in a better place than a lot of us do. Well, it's the law. I know you're supposed to have a sitter, but these are not specially trained people. They've grabbed a tech from one end of the hall and say, sit here. Or they, or they've, they. Yeah, I think. Well, I, you they may that. have done that, but Joint Commissioner, whoever it is, CMS says they need, uh, they are required to have tra- training specific to that yep. task. Yep. No, I'm, I'm well aware of that, and it's a, uh, it's frightening. I, I would think that when we look at this, uh, what's going on here, um, in the country, the psych situation has to be resolved in some reasonable way. There's got to be. It, when you and I were children, there were psych hospitals in America. One of the largest ones 
was very close to me in Ypsilanti, Michigan. And, and they had a functioning community. You could send people out there. They sort of know how to deal with these people. And then the drug era came in. Everybody got Thorazine, Compazine, whatever they were giving at that moment in time. What zine? Whatever, the zine of the day. And uh, they were all released to halfway houses, which meant they then became a police problem. <laughs> and yeah. they would pick them up, wandering around. Or a homeless problem. Or a homeless or problem. The usual kinds of things uh, that happen. Or a lot of the, these folks wind up in jail. Yes, and, and and the problem with with those kinds of criminals, there's some sort of romanticism in America. They've got to be a a jewel thief or an art thief. Or no, these these are just unfortunate folks who got picked up by the dragnet of the law, and there's not much uh, you're going to do it. We'll close with one case only because it can't get any worse, Rick. We've talked about cardiac quinus syndromes and compression of the spinal cord. Another case where they ordered the wrong test. They ordered no, a they, CT. No, they. Or, oh, usually they order a barium enema. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's called no. ordering the wrong test. No. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, if they, you think it's involving the spinal cord and compression, uh, did they have a normal CT in this case? Yes, they did. Did they have a did they have a uh, compression of the cord with an abscess? Yes, they did. Greg, we spent a lot of time at the course that's going on right across the hallway regarding ordering the right test yes. and there is more and more and more indications for the use of MRIs being ordered in the emergency department. We often think that oh uh, that that's not an ER related test. No no no. no. The, the you can make a great case for the scapula as being an MRI test after a plain x-ray is negative. There's a great case that you can make for all of the spinal cord related kinds of things. And people say, well, you know, uh, your, your ER patient will be put in front of any patient who's going uh, into that line of patients going to an MRI machine. Yes, it's scheduled, but mm -hmm. your patient's an emergency. In they go. Don't sweat it. And uh, you don't need an act of Congress to order an MRI yep. when the uh, circumstances are appropriate. You know, I could even stretch it a little further. You have a nasty, nasty injury to the knee. The knee's got a big effusion. This injury just occurred uh, within the last hour. A knee with a big effusion, until proven otherwise, has a substantial internal derangement, at least multiple right. ones. These people need an MRI. What, would it, what do we do? You get a plain film. doesn't show any fracture. Well, we're not interested in fractures. We're interested in cartilage and ligaments. Right. And then you say, oh, the x-ray is negative. We'll put them in at one of these really nice, uncomfortable uh, splints. splints. Send them to your orthopedic doctor in X days. And what the heck is the orthopedist going to do? He's going to get an, an MRI. MRI. <laughs> it's like, what are we thinking about here? Yeah, yeah unfortunately, I, I, you know, having watched the progression over the years of various testing... It's like we can't give up certain things. We have to do it. And uh, we've talked this, talked about this with regards to uh, navicular fractures and that sort of thing. Well, we've also done uh, the other version, which uh, is uh, quoted. And I think you wrote the chapter on this. Right. It's called, Is the C-Spine X-Ray Dead? The plain <laughs> C-Spine X-Ray Dead. In terms of, if you're going to seriously image the neck, you don't take a plain X-Ray. Right, exactly. 
it's 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 now gone. All right, we'll do a last one just to make sure everybody. Uh, uh, threats, threats. This is more threats. That this is the last one. Okay, sorry about this. This is again a Chicago case, big one against the University of Chicago Medical Center, and this had to do with how they ordered a test, and they didn't have it ordered stat. This is the finding. It's going to drive you nuts. Because I thought everything that came out of the ER was considered stat. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Okay. So, failure to order stat on the CT scan, they say, resulted in death. The plaintiff's decedent, a 63-year-old woman, was brought to the uh, department, emergency department uh, shortly after midnight um, in November 2012. After she had collapsed at home, although a CT scan of the head was done, it was neither ordered stat or, was, or did the ER make sure it was timely read. The scan, the, uh, the scan did identify a clot in the basilar artery. This woman's collapsed. She's got a basilar artery lesion. The clot was surgically removed uh, 12 hours later. Now, what they're saying is because the emergency, the emergency docs are in this case because of stat and making sure things are ordered. I guess the only point I would make is I think everything coming in the emergency department probably ought to be stat. But secondly, doctors do have some responsibility, and this is the way the case is painted. How come after an hour you weren't on top of them? How come you weren't on top of them after two hours to get the thing read? Three hours to get the thing read. Whose responsibility is it? And, of course, there was name, there was finger pointing and name calling and the emergency resident and, and between the neurology, re, the neurosurgery resident, excuse me, as to when this is going to be done. You know, these systems and places with big names on the door you can still get problems in care at the, most, at the most famous systems in the world. The plaintiff went a little over the top here. This woman was unconscious. It is in the posterior fossa. We don't know, as we pointed out earlier, exactly what would have been done here to suck that clot out. But he was able to convince a jury that it ought to be worth uh, $2.5 million. And the ER was involved on pursuing that scan. Well, you know, I guess there's some truth to that, that I, I, I would think that the emergency physicians on the superstat cases do need to ride and make sure everybody understands that this is, this is a superstat case. With regards to the readings, it really depends on your hospital. Sometimes these hospitals have good systems, and other times they have very dangerous systems. The idea that this took 12 hours to have this surgery... That's what they played on. ...is like, it's hard to conceive that that would have occurred. It had to be a series of of screw-ups. Series of errors. Nobody taking responsibility for certain things getting done. Want to do wines? Yes, sir. Wine okay. of the month. Uh, are we going to do the laxative of the month? No, we're not doing laxative of the month. And so uh, what, what, Yosef is going to have to get by without that. Uh, we're going now to Northern California. And one nice thing that uh, Parker, who runs the Wine Advocate, did was he looked back over some of the Northern California wines. And whenever I say that, 
I, I mean, this is the stuff above the usual wine district. Move up. You can't, you know, when you talk about Sonoma, Napa, okay, that's its own world. But he looked at some of the other stuff which California makes, which is uh, despite the drought, despite everything going on, things burning. You've had everything out there except locusts. The locusts are uh, due to arrive any <laughs> yeah, day now. They got to be. But uh, Ed Mead's Winery, it's it spelled all one word, E-D-M-E-A-D-E-S, has been getting a lot of attention. And, and, and Parker says... How much you want to spend? What do you want to do? He's got a proprietary red Foley, which is a combination, of course, with Zinn, Fondel, and a few of them, a 2012 wine and out of, from the Edmeads wineries, which they rate well. They charge 26 bucks a bottle for, which is not unreasonable. I know you want everything for the cheapest price possible, Rick, but 26 bucks. ER Docs can, can, can spring for 26 bucks. Okay. Okay. okay, and I think that uh, although I haven't tried this one yet, it's getting play, it's getting written up, and he says, you know what, if I'm going to buy a wine from California, I can get a 200 bottle, $200 a bottle one from Napa, or I can get this one for 26 bucks. And he says, it's pretty good. Well, I've done a number of road trips recently with uh, Diane throughout California, which is just an ex- extraordinary state to drive in yeah it is. but they are growing grapes wherever they can you know <laughs> yeah. they're cutting down the redwoods to grow grapes yeah. they're, they are in santa barbara they're north of uh, sonoma and they honest to goodness everybody's become a gentleman farmer well the second largest uh, consumer of of uh, u.s wines is china and uh, just like the just like the scotch this this in scotland they're sending that scotch over there like crazy we're shipping wine to the chinese they love it so any you're right any place that's got an acre left open they're going to plant I, I think i could do some in my own backyard you probably I, could probably could all right there we go that's the adi- our addition uh, for December 2015. Rick, it's been another fabulous year with you, and I hope our listeners are going to stick with us. Likewise, and I have a nice holiday with the uh, the family over at the cottage. The cottage. The cottage. The shack. <laughs> the shack. On, the, on uh, Lake Michigan. High on Lake Michigan. We'll do that. So, bye-bye for now. See you. <laughs> 